Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 159 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, season three. Not overall, actually, there's 223 episodes before this one, so that makes this 224 officially. Today is Thursday, October 7th, 2021. In this episode, we're going to talk about Charlemagne, Charlemagne, Charles the Great, specifically a biography of Charlemagne by Johannes Fried, German scholar. Peter Lewis is the translator. I just finished it yesterday, almost exactly five months after having started it. But before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about last night. So I was filling in. Jason Hubbard asked if I would take his slot. One of his sons had a birthday and they were going to celebrate, be home as a family, which was good, proper. So he asks me to fill in and I agreed. And I want to really give props to our middle school kids at Summit View Community Church. And I told them this last night as we're discussing Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 30. They ask big league questions. They don't ask softball questions. Perhaps it's because they're middle schoolers and they're not too cool just yet. But they ask big league questions. So for instance, last night, we found ourselves talking about free will, predestination, election. Does man have the ability to choose? Well, one of our young men, because that was my table, somehow I end up with the table with all boys consistently, which is cool, not a complaint. But one of these young men, was holding forth very clearly, very cogently on why he believes that God has given everyone the ability to choose and how it would be not fair if God did not give us the ability to choose to accept salvation or disbelieve. And some of the other boys had confused looks on their faces and I think Maybe a few of them wanted to object and wanted to disagree more than they did. But in any event, we had a good back and forth discussion. And I told them, I said, you know, you guys are going back and forth about, as one of them asked, how can man have free will if God knows what it is that we're going to choose in eternity past? If everything's already known to God, then do we have free will or do things just play out as they're going to play out, as they were always going to play out? Well, congratulations. You're asking questions that philosophers and theologians have spent their entire lives, their entire careers trying to answer. You're asking big questions, not softball questions. These are big questions. And so we talked through it a little bit and we went to Romans chapter 9, of course, as is proper. And I told them, I said, 
you know, if you want to know my answer, I'm inclined to agree with you. Okay. I, I have a predisposition to agree with you about free will and man's ability to choose and all of that and fairness. I get it. Somehow, either that's true and all of this business about God creating and enduring patiently vessels of wrath designed, created, intended to highlight the gifts of his grace to vessels of mercy, namely us, or this is true instead of what we suppose about us being so free to choose. Any way you slice it, there's a mystery to it. There is a difficulty in trying to grasp these things. But we know that this is true, and we have to start with that. And we've got to be willing to correct our own attitude based on all of what's in God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So, we had a good discussion. And again, I am really pleased to be helping teach middle school youth group, not every Wednesday night, but I'm in the rotation. And then when someone else has something come up, they're not able to make it. I occasionally fill in for others as well. And it really is. It's an encouragement. It's a highlight of my week to be able to go there and talk and discuss and help these young men in the making to pursue these things, to encourage them to pursue these things and to pursue them rightly and to understand not only God's word for what it says, but how we should understand. Do we understand how we should understand God's word and how we should approach it? That I think is how you teach a man to fish. You bring them to God's word and you equip them to think rightly about it and to look for the answers in God's word and in prayer and to meditate on his word. But let's skip over here to Charlemagne and let's talk about this great king of emperor of Western tradition. The markup on goodreads.com for the book says, and I quote, when Charlemagne died in 814 CE, common era, why not say AD, Anno Domine, but I digress. He left behind a dominion and a legacy unlike anything seen in Western Europe since the fall of Rome. Distinguished historian and author of the Middle Ages, Johannes Fried, presents a new biographical study of the legendary Frankish king and emperor, illuminating the life and reign of a ruler who shaped Europe's destiny in ways few figures before or since have equaled. Living in an age of faith, Charlemagne was above all a Christian king, Fried says. He made his court in Aix-la-Chapelle, the center of a religious and intellectual renaissance, enlisting the Anglo-Saxon scholar Alcuin of York to be his personal tutor and insisting that monks be literate and versed in rhetoric and logic. He erected a magnificent cathedral in his capital, decorating it lavishly while also dutifully attending mass every morning and evening. 
and to an extent greater than any ruler before him, Charlemagne enhanced the papacy's influence, becoming the first king to enact the legal principle that the Pope was beyond the reach of temporal justice, a decision with fateful consequences for European politics for centuries afterward. Though devout, Charlemagne was not saintly. He was a warrior king, intimately familiar with violence and bloodshed, and he enjoyed worldly pleasures, including physical love. Though there are aspects of his personality we can never know with certainty, Fried paints a compelling portrait of a ruler, a time, and a kingdom that deepens our understanding of the man often called the father of Europe. Now, this was a long book. No two ways about it. Hardcover, which I did not read. I listened to the audiobook, as that is my uh, tendency, my habit. But the hardcover, Goodreads tells me, was published first in 2013. Then I would suppose that was the German translation. It was published again in 2016 by Harvard University Press, October 10th, actually. So almost exactly five years ago. Hardcover, 688 pages. So it's a, it's a piece. It's a good-sized biography. In audiobook form, it was a bit on the long side. And when I say that, I don't just mean length. I mean in terms of holding my attention, I felt like it could have been shorter. It, according to Audible, is 30 hours and 17 minutes. And it's not that the subject of Charlemagne lacks interesting details or, an, you know, that it is boring. Charlemagne's not boring. You talk about somebody who's the father of Europe in the ninth century, eighth to ninth century. He's not boring. But the treatment of Charlemagne, I think, left something to be desired. And it got better, but at the beginning, there was this very annoying tendency on the part of the author to every sentence it felt like say maybe probably presumably possibly we think there was just so much speculation that at the end of the day you're left wondering you know until he broke out of that funk and i guess was in firmer ground that we have more documentation for, more evidence to support firm assertions for. It was like, do we know anything about Charlemagne? Do we, I mean, is it all speculation? Is it all guesswork? Is it all filling in details and connecting dots? Or, you know, which of these dots actually exist for reals that I can come away from this book having confidence in? So I told people that I was talking with, I told Bobby McPherson and Joseph Crampton with my weekly writing club in Gladii Veritas. I told them that it was not my favorite and early on this was how it was reading. It was speculation, rampant speculation and not a lot of certainty. But I will say it, it got better by the end. It seems like Fried broke away from that pattern in the first part of the book and 
there were more confident assertions, probably better documentation later in Charlemagne's life as he's got things established. He's got an administrative state built up in his empire. You have more people that are actually writing things down, perhaps even as Fried points out, the difficulty in understanding Charlemagne's early life is on purpose, by design. Perhaps Charlemagne did not want people at that time or in later generations to know too much because he was busy trying to create a certain image, a a certain aura about his rule, about his person, and therefore his legacy. But it is interesting, I think, to note what we do know. Sometimes I might wish we had stuck with that, not just stick to what we know and not work so hard to speculate and fill in gaps and presume and, and all that. But it is interesting looking only at what we know about Charlemagne, how he went about constructing the Frankish Empire or the Holy Roman Empire. For one thing, Charlemagne, at least what he said and how he justified what it was that he was doing, Charlemagne was very intentionally building Christendom. And what we know of as the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages The medieval period has a lot to credit Charlemagne for in the way that he thought of his Christianity and the way that he thought of his responsibility to rule and to reign. Charlemagne believed that he had a mission from God to be a Christian king, a Christian emperor. And so he's not secular like we think of all of our rulers these days. And if they engage in a little bit of God talk, it's sprinkling in God bless America at the end of a speech, which otherwise might have little to nothing recognizable as far as honoring God, what's in his word. And as Protestants, it might seem very odd and inappropriate how Charlemagne related to the Catholic Church and the Pope because we see how over the next 700 years from when Charlemagne ruled, the Roman Catholic Church really went off the rails into all sorts of abuses. And we can question, would that have happened had church and state been separated earlier? But I would contend the abuses of the Catholic Church are not primarily because church and state were combined. It's not that we should divorce faith from the way that we govern. It's a question of carts and horses. So what I mean is when a ruler, when a magistrate, when a bishop or cardinal, or pope, or king, or emperor, puts the cart before the horse in terms of political calculations, and then tries to proof text God's word to justify 
decisions they're making which are of dubious moral and ethical quality and then uses the power of the state to silence all questioning, criticism, dissidents. That's where you get all of the troubles. If it can be genuine that here's what God's word says, this is what we're going to do, and you, you put things in that order, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind as the first and greatest commandment, then love your neighbor as yourself, well, then it makes sense that part of how you might love your neighbor includes but is not limited to having a government which honors God. And it seems to me from reading Fried, from how Charlemagne is quoted, it seems to me that there are a lot of the same questions surrounding Charlemagne as surrounded Constantine, Emperor Constantine the Great. You have a civil authority, a very powerful civil authority, who is referring to the Christian faith as the inspiration for decisions that are being made, who is engaging the ecclesiastical authorities on questions of the purity of their carrying out of their duties. Are you abusing your position, clergy? Are you being pure? Are you being holy? Are you being faithful? Charlemagne's not afraid to jump in there and roll his sleeves up and ask those questions and engage on these things. Constantine wasn't either. He sees a division in the church. He sees a practice going off the rails or what, what he believes is going off the rails. Charlemagne, for instance, with icons, he gets engaged on, is it proper to venerate relics of the saints, pieces of the true cross, bones of martyrs, things like that? Is it proper for us to venerate those things? And there was a bit of a back and forth debate where Charlemagne's got scholars from all over Europe, from Ireland and from Rome and from elsewhere. And he catches wind that there's this council and debate and the questions being asked, what place do statues and shrines and relics have in our worship? Charlemagne is very concerned that Little flakes of paint are being taken off of statues of saints ground up and mixed with the communion wine. And that there's a kind of magical holdover from paganism that is creeping into the doctrine and practice of the church. He's very concerned about that. So he assembles the scholars and they talk it out and they write up their position on this because he sees himself as the protector of the faith, not just against pagan Germanic peoples or Muslims, but from within. He's a protector of the faith as he sees it from within. If we have schisms and heresy potentially, idolatry potentially, magic potentially, 
creeping into the doctrine and practice of the church. He wants to weigh in. Well, he weighs in, and the Pope proceeds to try to put him in his place. How dare you? Kind of a condescending response. That's what Charlemagne gets. A lecturing. He gets a talking to, a scolding, a wagging of the finger. But the very fact that Charlemagne weighs in is very interesting because we don't see that anymore. You don't see a president of the United States jumping in on a theological controversy, getting scholars together, writing up a rebuke or a reminder of our need to be faithful. And here's what God's word says, and here's what it means, and here's what's happening, and here's what needs to happen moving forward. We don't see that anymore, in large part because the joining of church and state from Charlemagne to Martin Luther led to a lot of problems, principally where you do have sometimes a protection of good faith, good doctrine, good practice, but also you sometimes have a protection of bad because the king finds it convenient to advance his agenda to protect his political allies who have been appointed within the church and within the state. And anyone who disagrees with them, contradicts, corrects them from the scriptures, who differs from them in teaching and practice, might find themselves branded not only a heretic, but a traitor. And they might find themselves summarily arrested, tortured, and executed. And so in the United States of America, we have freedom. And sometimes freedom carries with it its own attendant problems, risks, dysfunctions. But it's interesting all the, all the more, I think, for the attendant problems that we have, having gone so far in the direction of secularism, secular humanism, godlessness, it's interesting all the more to look 1,200 years back in time at Charlemagne engaging these things very differently. It's also interesting to me to read in Johannes Fried that Charlemagne was a student of Augustine's City of God. So I read for you the summary on goodreads.com about how Alcuin of York is called to be the personal tutor of Charlemagne. Alcuin of York has Charlemagne go through the City of God by Augustine, which is all about the history of Rome and the history of God's people and the history of how Christianity has related to the decline and fall of Rome, charges from pagan Romans that Christian belief has softened Rome and made Rome vulnerable to forays to invasions from barbarians. But what would happen if Rome really embraced what's in God's word, embraced goodness and truth on God's terms? Charlemagne is, I think you could say, an example of a prince, of a 
king of a emperor taking what Augustine writes in City of God and running with it. And very similar to Constantine, again, you have this tightrope being walked for the entire rule and reign of a monarch, an emperor, who in his private life is doing things which do not comport with what God says in his word, but in his official capacity as the head of state, he is insisting this is the standard. Now, for modern people, particularly those who are accustomed to hearing Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins making arguments for atheism, decrying any relationship between church and state whatsoever, even the barest hint of a relationship, like the nominal God bless America, they find concerning, offensive even. For those of us who are accustomed to hearing atheists rail against even the barest vestiges of religion, particularly the Christian religion, in public life, the disparity between Charlemagne or Constantine in their private life, their private dealings with threats, people within their circle, family, enemies, their approach to using violence, plotting, scheming, to eliminate rivals, to eliminate threats, while publicly identifying themselves with Christianity and the Bible. They come to that, atheists come to that, all too often, if we're not careful, we come to that and we say, if there's a mismatch between private conduct and the public claims and the public campaign and policy proposals, then throw the whole thing out. The whole thing is tainted and disgusting and perverse. And if you're an atheist, if you're Sam Harris, or if you're Richard Dawkins, you don't just throw out Charlemagne. You don't just throw out Constantine. You don't just throw out the potential of connecting church and state in some meaningful way. You throw out the Christian faith entirely. You throw out religion entirely. Well, if that's what Christianity is, then I don't, I don't want any part of that. No, no, that's just hypocrisy. No, but wait a second. I mean, atheists aside who have their own ax to grind, who are wise in their own eyes and their foolish hearts are darkened because God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Let's just talk about our attitude towards these things as Christians. I get it. I wrestle with it as well. What do I do with Charlemagne? What do I do with Constantine? There are moments, there are quotes, particularly towards the end of their lives, where both men are really seeming to grapple with, am I a Christian? Am I? Like, what I've done as emperor aside, am I personally ready to meet my maker? Am I right with God through 
Christ's atoning sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection. Am I right with God? Am I a Christian? And even for them to ask those questions and seemingly with sincerity towards the end of their lives, as they start to be more and more sober about their forthcoming conclusion of life, this life anyway, the fact that they're asking those questions puts them in a different category in my mind compared to, say, Niccolo Machiavelli and the prince. Yes, it could be an act. It could be just a show. But I don't think it is because Machiavelli and in our day, Saul Alinsky, people who are cut from his cloth, these men tell you out front that they are lying to you. Look at Joe Biden, for example, too. Joe Biden pushes for partial birth abortion, abortion on demand, no qualifications, no objections, no limitations, no speed bumps, nothing. Like, we don't want anything to get between a woman and murdering her child, her unborn child. And people ask, rightly so, how does your Catholic faith inform your position on abortion? Oh, ho, ho, whoa, don't ask that. No, really. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this. You claim to be a devout Roman Catholic. What relationship does the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church on life beginning at conception, murder, what bearing does that have on your position with regards to abortion? You have to pick one. Either A, you don't believe that life begins at conception, which means that maybe there's a whole lot else in Roman Catholic teaching that you don't believe, all the while claiming to be a devout Roman Catholic. And how does that work? How do you be schizophrenic like that? Separation of church and state? How about what you really mean? Separation of all obligation, duty, to God, subjection to God's authority, separation of that from what you do. Well, that's just another way of saying that you're a rebel. You are in rebellion against God. Your choices are either to live in light of God's word or to be an enemy of God. Are you under his grace or are you under his wrath? If you're under his grace, then there should be fruit in keeping with repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not to save yourself, but because you're already saved. But if you're already saved, you should be bearing that fruit. And if you're not bearing that fruit, it calls into question whether you really do believe the things you claim to believe. I, for one, do not see and hear from Joseph R. Biden the questioning of, am I right with God? As he nears the end of his life, He's obviously not in great health, mental health, physical health. As he nears the end of his life, do you see Joe Biden, supposed devout Catholic, really wrestling with, am I right with God? Do you see him doing that in the vein of Charlemagne or Constantine? I would say no. No, you don't. So the very fact that Charlemagne and Constantine actually genuinely, I think, from what I read, grapple with that and it bothers them. They feel convicted of sin. 
in their own lives. They know that they have transgressed God's standard all the while claiming to be serving God and doing the work of the Lord as the head of state. That puts them in a different category, in my view. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I know what to do with them, but it does help in the process of elimination that I don't just write them off like I would a disciple of Saul Alinsky or a disciple of Niccolo Machiavelli. I think a, I think a Machiavelli or an Alinsky, they would interpret Charlemagne and Constantine as fulfilling what it is that they're describing. Pretend at public virtue, all the while having zero constraints on your actual behavior behind the scenes. Do whatever you've got to do to get more power, to retain your power, to consolidate your power, to eliminate threats to your power. But I think that's overly simplistic. It's too easy. And it doesn't make sense of all of the evidence. So I don't think it's fair to do that. I think, as Fried points out at the end of his book, it's wrong for us to project too many assumptions from our day and age onto Charlemagne. We have the benefit of hindsight, and so we can see consequences for some of the things that he did, which he presumably did not foresee. So there's some measure of hindsight being 2020 that not only should you not avoid, you can't avoid. However, when it comes to determining the measure of the man from a spiritual standpoint, it would be wrong for us to presume too, too much based on those values, morals, ethics in our day, which have arisen more out of secular humanism than they have out of Christian life and thought. You know, it's interesting to me, as I do just a quick math timeline in my head, I was thinking about this yesterday because I finished Charlemagne and then on my way home, I resumed listening to Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. And Bondage of the Will, for those of you who don't know, is Martin Luther responding to Erasmus of Rotterdam, very highly respected Roman Catholic scholar of the time who had written on free will in defense of free will, speaking of predestination. And Martin Luther just goes after him, all in. Basically making much of Romans chapter 9 and other passages and saying, no, it's, it's God's will. It is not of man's will that we are saved. It's of God's will that we are saved. But Martin Luther kicks off the Protestant Reformation. He helps to provide inspiration to other men, other groups of men across Europe who have similar concerns about the corruption and abuses of the Roman Catholic tradition, getting in the way of faithful Christian life and thought, the practice and doctrine of the church being pure. From Martin Luther to our day, we have about five centuries. And that may seem like a long, long time, but it's really not all that long. Five centuries is not all that long in the course of human history. From the founding fathers to our day, we have 
about two and a half centuries. That seems like a long time, but it's really not that terribly long. So the Founding Fathers and the birth of the United States of America is like a midpoint between Martin Luther and us. Now consider this. Between Charlemagne, 814 AD, I'll say AD, I like AD better than CE, common era, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 814 to the 15th century. We'll just say 9th century to the 15th century. We've got six centuries, roughly. A little longer, but not a whole lot longer than the amount of time between Martin Luther and us. Now think about that. We look back at the legacy of Luther with regards to the Protestant Reformation, and there's as much time between him and us as if, you know, imagine you're alive in Luther's day. Imagine you're Luther, and you're looking back at the legacy of Charlemagne. You have about as much time between Charlemagne and yourself when you're living in Luther's day as we do in our day between Luther and us. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered the implications of that? I think it's, it's interesting to ponder. Now, consider this. Let's go a step further. From 814, when Charlemagne dies, to Augustine of Hippo publishing The City of God, or full title, On the City of God Against the Pagans. How's that? City of God by Augustine is published A.D. 426. So from 426 to 814, 388 years. From Augustine of Hippo, publishing the City of God until the reign of Charlemagne, about four centuries. From the death of Charlemagne to Martin Luther, about six centuries. From Martin Luther to us, about five centuries. You can subdivide the history of the church with these guys. And even go further back. You get 426 to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, about four centuries. And I think that's a helpful way to break up the history of the church since Christ. From Christ to city of God, from city of God to Charlemagne, from Charlemagne to Luther, from Luther to us. But imagine yourself living in Charlemagne's day, 8th century, 9th century, but let's just go with the 8th century. From the 8th century back to Augustine, 400 years roughly, 300, 300 and some change. Not that long, really. Like a little longer than from the founding fathers to our day. And arguably, Charlemagne is looking at Augustine as 
having created this framework for understanding the situation as it is. The opportunity here to have a city of God in the Frankish Empire, in what comes to be known as the Holy Roman Empire. I think that's remarkable. And I think out of respect for not only the amount of time that has passed, but also what very often is our own abject ignorance and presumptuousness regarding history, we do well to slow down when we're thinking about Luther, Charlemagne, Augustine. So I don't know that I can recommend Johannes Fried's book, Charlemagne, but I would say, I think in conjunction with, say, The Forge of Christendom, if you have the time and you're interested in Western civilization, the rise of Europe as we know it, the history of Christianity, I think it makes for an interesting companion to the city of God. I think it makes for an interesting companion to the church history by Eusebius. If you're going to study Constantine, study also Charlemagne. But I got to run. That's all for this episode. Check it out if you will. Wasn't my favorite. There were some interesting things there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.